I know, of course, lots of authors feel pressure to, in addition to actually write a book, like build their platform and get the message out and market their book. And it's that is a whole separate piece of the job in addition to actually writing the book. So yeah, but I, I enjoy helping authors steward their message well, you know, yeah, and just helping them understand that they are not alone in the process. Like they have the whole publishing team behind them. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, the companies, and the small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I get to sit down with an incredible entrepreneur, author, community activist, speaker, leader, or just an incredible person who is trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but also with their career. My goal with this show is to show you, the listener, that no matter where you are, no matter what you do, you can make an impact. My guest this week is the incredible Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin is a Midwest native now living in New York City. She's an oldest child, an INFJ, an Enneagram 3 Wing 4, and an editorial director for Brazos Press. But the most important thing you should know about her is that she loves words and believes they can change the world. She has written for The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, The New York Times. She has been on CNN, ABC, NPR, you know, Religion News Service, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I mean, so many places. She has written some incredible, incredible things. And her new book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Profits Are Hurting the Church, released last week and is one of the most important books I think that we'll read in the most recent couple of years. We had such an incredible and funny and challenging conversation. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about things that are going on in the church, things that are going on in celebrity and influencer culture, so many things. Her conversation is really going to challenge you, I think encourage you, and also just I think you're going to leave this conversation with a new perspective on a few things. So without further ado, I'm not going to waste any more time and we're going to get right to my conversation with Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Molly. I am really looking forward to this because uh, as we said before we started recording, we have quite a few friends in common, including mm-hmm. Sharon Hottie Miller and Joy Agritreed and now Marcy Gregg. And so I just feel like, you know, by proxy, we are... This was destined to happen. This was dest- destiny, <laughs> destiny. Um, yes. So uh, give us the Caitlin 101, who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are today. Okay. Well, I'm Caitlin Beatty. I am an oldest child in living in Brooklyn, but originally from Ohio. So I'm definitely a Midwesterner <laughs> trying to make my way in New York. Currently, I am editorial director with Brazos Press, which is part of Baker Publishing Group. And then before that, I was an editor with Christianity Today magazine. I'm also a book author and a journalist. So writing is my primary vocation. And when I'm not writing, let's see, what am I doing? <laughs> I, um, I, I've lived in Brooklyn for about four years. So I love exploring different neighborhoods, going out to new restaurants. Um, the parks here are amazing. And as we are talking, I'm getting ready to leave the country for Italy. 
like tonight. <gasps> oh my gosh. Well, that's awesome. And is it for like fun, work, pleasure? Yes. yes. Just like for fun. No work. <laughs> the the email is coming down. I'm shutting everything down. Yes. This is a trip planned for the summer of 2020. And obviously it didn't happen then, but we yeah. were able to reschedule. So yeah, I'm like ready to peace out in a little bit. Um, okay. I have to just ask where in Italy are you going? How long are you going for? Because I just am now going to, uh, like in my mind, travel along with you. <laughs> yes. I will take you with me. Um, well, I'm starting in Rome. I'm meeting up with a couple girlfriends there and then we'll, we'll spend a couple days there and then fly to an Island nation called Malta. Yes. The Southern coast of Italy. And we'll be there for four or five days, like going to the beach. We've talked about snorkeling, renting a car. And then after four or five days with them, I will actually head up to the northern region of the country to Italy to the Dolomites, which mm. is more like it's, it's the southern part of the Alps yeah. and do like basically recreate the sound of music. <laughs> oh I mean, not the Nazi part. Yeah, um, yeah. Sans Nazis. <laughs> sans Nazis. But there will be some singing and like Alpine Meadow and just hiking and yeah, exploring that part of the country. And then I come home. So I'll be gone for two weeks. And yeah, I'm just really excited. I think it'll be a good mix of like regions are really different. Like the north part of the country and the south part of the country are really different. And like doing some of it with friends and some of them, some of it by myself. I think it's a, it's a good mix. I love it. And absolutely, I'm going to be living vicariously through you. <laughs> and by the time this airs, I'm sure everyone can go onto your Instagram and just look at all of your beautiful images <laughs> and uh, live live in the past vicariously through you. Um, yeah, like I don't want to do overdo it because, no. you know, when yeah. you, you know, somebody's on their vacation, it's like, well, every 30 minutes they're posting an update. Maybe I don't need this level of detail, but... <laughs> There, I'm sure I will post a few pictures high level from the Alpine Meadow high yes. level. If I will accept nothing less than you in like a Julie Andrews dress with the yes. arms outstretched, and <laughs> I expect nothing less than like uh, there's a Ricola guy in the background with the big mm-hmm. horn, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, I'm combining uh, cultural phenomenons. But uh, <laughs> like, yes. you know what I mean. I will, Caitlin. I will accept nothing less than any of this. Okay. Okay. So challenge. Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. Please find me a Ricola guy. Uh, just with the with the thing. So anyway, mm-hmm. I don't know if they have those in the northern part of Italy, but I'm just <laughs> speaking it. I, I will be on the lookout now. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't going into this trip thinking of the Ricola guy, but now like that is the only thing I will be able to think about. And I don't know why that that's the like image that came to my mind is just like <laughs> what, if, what if Italians are just like you're in the wrong country this you're thinking of Switzerland <laughs> we are Italy <laughs> you're thinking know. of an entirely different country <laughs> I don't know why that came in my head but that really tickled me all right in any event um well I also just love your passion for writing and and um, I was I was a creative writing major in college, so I'm not as like well into the professional writing sphere as you are, but also just love everything about the written word. I'm curious, were you the kind of kid who always was writing? Like, did you make up stories as a kid? Were you, you know, mm-hmm. interviewing people as a nine year old <laughs> writing, having a little community newspaper? Like, what was your yeah. was this just a lifelong thing for you? I don't remember 
the community newspaper would have been amazing. I didn't get that far, <laughs> although I do remember like reading the newspaper when I was a child. And yeah. Like this is amazing that you can learn so much about what's going on in the world. There's so many different topics. And so I think from an early age, I really liked the journalistic writing. I think my parents would say I was very verbal, <laughs> which is like a nice way of saying like she talked a lot. Um, Same. <laughs> but then, yeah, I, I was uh, the kind of student who in high school and college, like actually enjoyed writing papers. Like I, I enjoyed learning about a topic and then kind of telling you about it and yeah. organizing my thoughts in that way. I mean, not all papers. There were certain topics that I didn't care about, but yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, after college, I started working as a copy editor at Christianity Today. That was kind of a, a pretty quick step, even though, you know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do when I graduated. But that set me on a path of, I would say, being in publishing, you yeah. know, not just not creative writing. I'm terrified of the idea of writing fiction, like people yeah. who can oh, yeah, write no. fiction. I'm like, what, what does that, what does that like? Yeah. Um, but yeah, writing, publishing and thinking about writing as a way to serve people, mm. like help them understand something or analyze something or connect it to their faith like that. That is what makes the most sense to me. Yeah. And I I love the way you articulated that as writing as a way to serve people. And I mean, that, you know, I feel like I've said this a million times on this podcast is that's one of the things that my goal with this podcast is really just illustrating in a, a different way of how different people are using their unique gifts, their unique skill sets to serve people in whatever mm -hmm. way that might look. And I love when I talk to people who who are really passionate about the gift that they have and how they can use it to serve to serve others. And so with that, I'm curious because you have written books, you, uh, you know, you've written articles, but then also you're on the publishing side. What was the first thing that you did where you really, or was there a piece or something, a project that you worked on where you just thought, oh, this is actually like how I can serve people with this particular skill set, or this particular thing is really striking a chord with people and, and helping people understand you know, mm. X, Y, Z more. Um, is there anything that kind of stands out in your mind? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about going like way back to college and yeah. working on the college newspaper and writing op-eds about things that were happening on campus and having fellow students come up to me and say like, thank you so much for helping me articulate that. Like I've been thinking along similar lines, but you really put into words what I was thinking in that was really helpful to me. Yeah. Um, and then when I was at Christianity Today, just writing editorials, which was intimidating because like my name wasn't on it. It was like the official position of Christianity Today. Yeah. But, no pressure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, a historic publication founded by Billy Graham and speaking for millions of Christians. Um, yeah. But you know, writing editorials and then getting feedback, <laughs> not all of it positive all the time, but a lot of it positive saying like that, thank you for articulating something that I've been thinking, or thank you for connecting my beliefs to contemporary issues. And then of course, in book publishing, which I've been in now for about four years, just the ability of a book and an author within the book to go really deep into a topic, to share their story, to encourage, to challenge, 
and I'm not, you know, I'm so behind the scenes with it. It's really about the author and his or her work, but I really believe that a book probably more than an article (laughs) or an Instagram post can change someone's life, like can actually put their life on a different trajectory. So that's an exciting process to be a part of and to help authors really zero in on what is your message? What's the thing that you can't not say? And how do we structure this in a way that helps that maximizes that message and will most clearly connect with readers. Yeah. Um, so sometimes my work as an, as a book editor feels a little bit like therapy, like for our authors. (laughs) Yes. 100%. Because, you know, writing a book is so personal and it's so much time and energy and people are often like putting their life out on the page and they're all sorts of very understandable hesitations and insecurities that come with writing a book because I mean, at the very least, once it's out there, you can't take it back. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you can't edit it. It's like, it's very vulnerable. I know, of course, lots of authors feel pressure to, in addition to actually write a book, like build their platform and get the message out and market their book. And it's that is a whole separate piece of the job in addition yeah. to actually writing the book. So yeah, but I, I enjoy helping authors steward their message well, yeah. you know? Yeah. And just helping them understand that they are not alone in the process. Like they have the whole publishing team behind them. Yeah. I very much connect and relate to that because I'm currently writing my first book. And um, yes. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's a really intimidating and overwhelming process. And um, mine's a memoir. And so it like it really is every (laughs) nitty gritty, ugly detail of my life. and. I remember when I, I mean, I am a chronic overthinker. I just, I understand that that is a thing that I am and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on not being an overthinker, but I mean, I'm such a chronic overthinker that it took me an embarrassingly long amount of time to finish my book proposal. And I remember when I had originally like sent it off to Joy, uh, my my agent and, you know, like as my as my pitch. And I just the, the second I hit send and I was like, this is awful. Like no one's going to like it. <laughs> Everyone is going to yeah. think this is terrible. And mm-hmm. and my husband is looking at me and he's like, would you stop? Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's great. And you know, it's great. And I'm like, I don't I don't. It's like, mm-hmm. nobody's going to want it. And then when I first got that reply from Joy and she was like, this is awesome. I want to talk. And I was like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. oh, she likes it. Oh, OK, OK. But then it was like once we'd kind of refined it and then we sent it off to publishers and I was like, everyone's going to hate it. Nobody's going to want to publish this, you know. And so mm-hmm. and I talked to other author friends. and They're like, yeah, you absolute. That is a completely normal part mm-hmm. of this process. And so as I've been thinking through and actually sitting down to write this thing, I've been having to kind of have those conversations with myself on, okay, so once you send this manuscript off, except because every every author has said this, and I would love to hear if you concur with this, is every author I've heard is just get it in your head that the first draft is probably really terrible. And mm-hmm. like it's your opportunity to just get the words on the page. Mm-hmm. And the revision process is when you really make it shine. Um, I'm curious, is that like, do you find that that really is the case for most people? I think it is probably true for most people. Although I also have authors who seem to know exactly like, you know, they're so clear in their mind and everything's organized internally. So by the time it comes out, it's like, 
a little golden egg that's like ready to go. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I thought of, you know, Charlie and the chocolate factory yeah. as a metaphor there. But yeah, absolutely. Like writing, writing is a way to figure out what you think. Yeah. <laughs> and if you are figuring out what you think as you go, of course, it's going to be messy. And of course, you know, every writer, even I would say, especially the best writers need an editor to help them not miss the forest for the trees to help them kind of zoom back and see the overall structure and themes. And like, you're taking us on a tangent here that doesn't have anything to do with your primary point. Do we need this story in here? Yeah. Um, I know it's important to you because it's your life. And so, but um, I think one of the most important things that editors can do is help writers identify who their audience is. Yeah. And then kind of from that, determine what is the thing that my audience is most going to connect with, resonate with, or need to hear from me. Like knowing who you're talking to, like if you're thinking about being on a stage and getting up, well, if you're a good speaker, you've done a little bit of work thinking through the people in in the pews or in the auditorium or wherever in your audience and helping that refine what you say and how you say it. And I think it's a very similar process with writing. I think what's what's hard with writing is that, you know, when you're speaking, you can kind of get an immediate reaction. Like, is this resonating? Yeah. <laughs> Do these people like my sense of humor? Oh, I shouldn't say that. Never mind. Um, but with writing, you put it out there and, and like, there's like, I don't know, where is it going? <laughs> yeah. How are they going to get it? What are they thinking? Like the feedback loop takes a really long time. Whereas with speaking, it's so immediate. So I think that can be challenging. And, you know, of course, in the silence, lacking feedback, your, your mind goes to the worst case scenario, like every time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, I think every writer struggles with insecurities about sending both sitting down to write the book and sending it out to the world. I mean, how can you not? It's a book, yeah. you know, and and if it's your life, as it sounds like it is for you and for the book that you're working on now, it's super personal. Yeah. You know, you're not just sharing an idea. You're sharing something really core to who you are. Yeah. And nobody wants to feel like <laughs> I'm opening my whole life up to critique, you yeah. know? Yeah, uh, 100%. And I loved the, one of the things that you said kind of earlier was, how you talked about how a book, you know, more so than an article or an Instagram post can change somebody's life. And, you know, I, I experienced that myself and I watched my mom, um, you know, my mom was an author and my mom's memoir, uh, changed people's lives. And I mean, she died almost 20 years ago and I still, to this day, get emails every single week Mm. from people who still are reading her book and Mm. are say, Hey, you know, I, I just read your mom's book and I was Googling the author and, you know, saw she passed away. And I'm saying, I'm like, this is like 20 years ago, you know, but the fact that this many years later, her book is still affecting people. And then I think about, you know, the first time I ever read, you know, uh, the glass castle by Jeanette Mm walls and just thought like, Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, this is the most like, (laughs) this book is incredible. And I've read it probably four or five times. Um, You know, and I think about uh, other just like really personal uh, memoirs or nonfiction stories, or even just, you know, fiction that has just greatly impacted my life. And, and, and so it's like, as you, as anybody who is, has this burning desire within them to 
you know, put their story or put their idea on paper, you know, with this, with the idea in the back of their head that this could change somebody's life. You never know. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just one Mm -hmm. person who knows, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, but Mm -hmm. I love that you have just such a heart for helping people articulate those things and get those ideas organized and on paper. And um, so you, the way that you use that gift specifically, but then there was something else that you said that I wanted to, I think is the perfect transition to you know, one of the other things that I really wanted to talk with you about. And that's this idea of a lot of authors have this idea, they have this gift of writing, and then all of a sudden they have to like sell a book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they have to build a platform, but then Mm -hmm. it just sometimes can become this slippery slope or this whole other mess. And that has led you to actually write a book sort of on this topic, (laughs) which uh, as when this airs, the book will have come out last week. So Mm-hmm. Let's dive into that topic because mm-hmm. I, there's a lot I want to unpack here. So, yes, um, me talk, too. <laughs> talk about your book and yes, the, what it is and where did the idea for it come from? Yeah. So, there is a little bit of an irony, I will say, up front in publishing a book that critiques platforms when I had to have a platform in part to sell and write a book. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> and I acknowledge that in the book, but it is called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms and Profits Are Hurting the Church. Not a light, breezy topic. No. Um, but I think ultimately hopeful, you know, in terms of how do we disentangle faithfulness from platform and branding and stop centering our ministries on like one specific charismatic individual. Um, And I do have a chapter on, you know, the platform question and how it has, in my view, come to really dominate a lot of Christian book publishing. And I understand it. Like I, it's not that having a platform or seeking to build one from which you can share a message is bad in and of itself. It is partially just acknowledging that you have to build something for people to even know to come hear your message. Like how else are they going to know, you know, unless you're like the Pope or (laughs) like, you know, unless by, by dint of your kind of position or your last name or something, people are like, Oh, I, Oh, I know who that is. So I want to go hear what they have to say. So it's a real pressure point that a lot of authors feel. I think there are healthy and unhealthy ways to go about it. I think just making sure that you keep the main thing in mind, which is the message itself and not the platform. Like the point of building or sustaining a platform isn't just to get more followers or likes, Mm -hmm. right? It is to have a sturdy place from which you can share your message, which is the main thing. Right. And I think that can be tricky because it can often feel like you have to put the cart before the horse to even be able to publish a book. Because when you're putting together a book proposal, you know, most publishers are going to ask you to include information about your platform, your marketing, your social media followers. It's almost like you have to have the thing built or you have to be building the thing before publishers even know what you plan to say from it. Yep. 100%. <laughs> um, and then even as you're writing the book or after you've written the book of it and you're getting ready to share it, you're doing all of this work on the side to continue building and sustaining it. And sometimes it really feels like it's easy to forget that the message is the main thing and not the platform. So I think if there are ways to check internally to make sure, I, I think, you know, ultimately these are all questions about motive 
and that those are very personal questions, but just coming back to the centrality of the message and connecting the message with people rather than the platform for its own right. purposes or just for like numbers as a form of like validation. And I will say, I, you know, there are times when I check Instagram or Twitter and I'm like, oh, nobody liked that. Oh, I, um, I guess no one cares about me. And it's like, Caitlin. <laughs> That is not the right conclusion, <laughs> you know, there, but it's easy to fixate on the numbers, you know, and just asking, what is that about? Am I, am I putting too much of my own self-worth or the worth of my message onto followers or numbers? Yeah. I, I just think if you're in that, the publishing world or you have any kind of platform, just keeping a check on that and making sure that there's also a thread of authenticity, like <laughs> I I now because Instagram has like pivoted to video and they prioritize video. I'm like, oh, I guess I need to do a viral dance now. And it's like, no, no, you don't. That doesn't, <laughs> that's not authentic to you. And you would hurt people's eyes if you tried to do that. <laughs> so not just looking at what like figure out what is authentic to who you are and your personality right. rather than, oh, they're doing that. So I guess I need to do that too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot that I could say about what you just said there. But I'm curious, was there a particular event, news story, or just was it a gradual cultural shift that just struck a chord in you that said, I need to write a book about this? Yeah, pivoting away from the platform question, which we can come back to. So when I was an editor at Christianity Today, we would occasionally get tips about people, about evangelical or Christian leaders that yeah. were household names. And, you know, CT is a journalistic publication. And so part of our responsibility was to kind of dig into tips and see, okay, is there anything credible here? Can we substantiate this? Are people willing to speak on record? And oftentimes, you know, we couldn't really do much with the information, but I just remember a season working at the magazine where like three big household names we had received tips about. I was like, really that person? Like there was such a cognitive dissonance be between who I perceived them to be as like a famous pastor or evangelist or author. And then we're hearing this information and it's proving itself to be credible. And that's really hard to mm -hmm. process. And so that made me want to kind of dig into whether there was something about the fact that they were celebrities in and of itself that kind of shielded them from accountability. I mean, anybody with a, in a position of spiritual leadership needs, we all need accountability, but I think especially if you have a position of leadership and like the bigger your platform, the more accountability right. you need. You know, right. when we find ourselves with immense power to shape and influence others, and when we are representing the church and Christ to a watching world, we yeah. need all the more <laughs> accountability. And a, a through line in those stories was like the person had kind of been able to operate without accountability. And that that was a very unhealthy place for them yeah. and ended up hurting a lot of other people. So I wanted to look at, you know, is there something about the American church in particular that's obsessed with celebrity? Why do we keep putting people on pedestals? How is the book publishing industry a part of that? What are the costs? And then what's the way forward? And can we recapture a vision of ordinary faithfulness, you know, and a, a sense of living a life 
of integrity behind closed doors. Yeah. <laughs> like what if nobody sees this? What if only God sees this? You know, but are, can we accept that? You know, have we seen kind of the excesses of a Christian movement in the U.S. that's really fixated on growth and numbers and spectacle and bringing in as many people as possible? And have we ended up justifying unethical or unchristian behavior if it like quote unquote works? And can we return to a smaller, humbler vision of faithfulness as the way forward? You know, as you were just just talking about that, one of the people that immediately came to mind was somebody like Eugene Peterson. And mm-hmm. I remember I was interviewing uh, Pastor Daniel Grothy, uh, who I just love him. He's just, he's awesome. He's been on the show twice. Huge fan um, of just who he is as a human being. But he's, and he's somebody who, who, actually was Eugene Peterson was his personal mentor for 10 years. Mm. And he talked about he talked about how Eugene was this guy who lived in obscurity for Mm. 30 plus years and just pastoring this tiny little small church. And he was just being faithful with these small little things. And here, you know, he just decides to one day translate the, you know, or write the message uh, translation of the Bible. And overnight, his life changed. But even up until the day that he died, he just lived Mm -hmm. this super humble, uh, you know, just kind of obscure existence and just being this faithful writer and faithful to his wife and and his family Mm -hmm. and his small little church and how he wasn't affected by, you know, the internet or anything like mm-hmm, that. He just mm-hmm. kind of kept to himself and read his newspaper and you know, all that kind of stuff and how how we've gotten away from that. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're right. And and you get this little inkling of of power, this little inkling of um just this taste of whatever it is that our, uh, our, our hearts desire. And Mm -hmm. it just becomes a, uh, you know, almost like a, like a tumbleweed growing on itself, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, into something that becomes really dangerous. Mm -hmm. And yeah, go ahead. I'd love for you to respond to that. Yeah. I, um, I think you're right about power. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I, I think, it, it strikes me or it has struck me that we think about the three ancient temptations as money, sex, and power. And in the American church, we have a lot of books and resources about sexual integrity, sexual faithfulness, as well as financial stewardship or giving, you know, lavish giving or financial accountability. But I can count on one hand the number of books I have read about kind of a theology of power Mm -hmm. and stewarding power and being willing to give up power. I mean, Eugene Peterson is someone who thought a lot about these themes, Henry Nouwen, Catholic spiritual writer, but it seems like there's kind of a dearth of deep thinking about what power is and how it can be misused. And I wonder if we're kind of playing catch up now because we've, we've seen examples of power gone so wrong. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, it can be really hard to kind of detect how power is operating in your life until it's, until it has its hooks in you, you know, which is again, just coming back to the importance of accountability and, and having others see it potentially operating in your life and being able to kind of name it. 
But also, I mean, it is not beyond me that for all of his best-selling books, the fact that he was such a prominent, respected, beloved figure in the American church, Eugene Peterson kind of day in and day out seemed to be most focused on serving the people in his church Yeah, and stayed grounded in that embodied community of real people, like flesh and blood people who he was called to serve. And just how beautiful the vision that is. And of course, I think there are lots of pastors and ministers who are focused on that as well. You know, we just don't hear about them because they're not going to make headline news, right? right? Unfortunately, it's like the bad stories that are the ones that get told. So I, I, I do think that there are certainly plenty of pastors and leaders in the church who are kind of trying to walk in the way of Eugene Peterson. But it's it's unfortunate that the opposite examples are the ones where there are massive churches, massive movements, and therefore there's more people that are hurt in the process and like kind of a watching world seeing this, you know, seeing a church or a leader implode. And it's hard to read those stories. And, you know, the main reason I wanted to write this book is like, I don't want to read any more of those stories. They're really hard. Yeah. (laughs) I want to see the church be healthier and humbler and grounded and focused on that in-person ministry in the way that people like Eugene Peterson are. I'm going to take a quick break from my chat with Caitlin to thank our partner of the show, and that is Mama Suds. You know that I have been a longtime fan of Mama Suds. I've used their products personally here in my home for years. I had Michelle Smith, the head mama, on the show a few years ago, so you can even hear my interview with her. And I absolutely love supporting a mama-owned small business. But what I love most about Mama Suds is that her products are incredible. They actually work, they smell amazing, and they are safe and non-toxic. We use everything in their home from their laundry soap, their Castile soap, their all-purpose household cleaner, their stain stick. I love her dryer balls. I mean, you name it, we have tried it and love it. But again, one of the things that's so incredible about them is not only is every single ingredient clean and safe for everyone to use, but it actually works. Let me tell you that my kids get their clothes so dirty and that stain stick will get anything out. I have even, no joke, seen it get out some set-in stains that I thought there's no way that this is coming out. And sure enough, it did. In fact, it's canning season here on the farm and I spilled some tomato sauce I was making on one of my favorite shirts. And I thought, there's no way this tomato sauce is going to stain it forever. It was like comical, like you've seen on an old commercial where they very intentionally splatter tomato sauce on somebody's shirt. Well, that happened. And I'm telling you, the Mama Suds stain stick got it out. So head on over to mamasuds.com. That's M-A-M-A-S-U-D-S.com and use the coupon code Molly and that gets you 15% off. Trust me when I say you're going to love it. Now back to my conversation with Caitlin Beatty. It's interesting. A couple months ago, uh, back in when when this airs, back in June, I interviewed uh, his name is uh, Pastor David Ashcraft, and then uh, his writing partners, uh, Dr. Rob Scasel, and they wrote this book called "What Was I Thinking?" and it it was basically talking about you know, why we make certain decisions, how we make decisions, but how we can make better decisions so that we can lead better. And, but David was actually talking about how the, you know, the, the catalyst for that book was he had gone out to dinner with a prominent, uh, you know, well-known pastor 
you know, and he said somebody I committed or considered a mentor and had this great dinner with him. And then the following Monday came into work and was going to, you know, tell people, oh, I had this great dinner with this, you know, you know, big name. And he was just Mm -hmm. really great. And then that morning, some Mm -hmm. news broke about a very uh, kind of salacious scandal. And he he was just shaken by it. And he just Mm -hmm. is like, wait a Mm -hmm. second, you know, but I just had dinner with him and, and, you know, and he's just thinking to himself, like, what, what was he thinking? And so one of the things Mm -hmm. that we talked about in that conversation and and why I I set that up is because uh, we talked about this idea of a lot of it stems from power and how it is much more difficult to hold people accountable when they are making decisions that are arguably like on the surface maybe not all that bad the like little micro decisions where it's like is mm. that something that i should like say to my friend like maybe this is a slippery slope mm-hmm. but it's easier to hold somebody accountable when they're making a blatantly sinful sin but if it's a oh you're uh you know dming uh somebody who's not your spouse and you're just mm-hmm. having more of a conversation than you probably should be having where it's like that is just a is it a mm. it, do you do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm what I'm mm-hmm. kind of uh insinuating is this a lot of those big, big moral failures that, you know, quote unquote get somebody canceled, they didn't happen overnight. And so right. a lot of those right. decisions that are leading to uh, abuse of power in whatever mm-hmm. way that that looks, a lot of those decisions that led up to that, if you look at each each decision individually, it's harder to pinpoint. Mm-hmm. Where did that person go wrong? Mm-hmm. And so how do you create a system of accountability around somebody or around yourself right. when those decisions are a little harder to quantify? I use the example of the true story of the guy in Harlem back in like 01. He was a construction worker and he brought home an eight-week-old tiger cub. <laughs> and he was like, look at this cute little tiger cub. This is a true story. And um, he was like, you know, it's a cute little precious little tiger cub. This is the only eight weeks old, little tiny kitty cat. And uh, guess what happens when you feed a tiny little tiger cub kitty cat? As soon it becomes a 420, 475 pound full blown Bengal tiger. And mm-hmm. then they have to like bring the police and tranquilizer darts and all that kind of things. <laughs> like, like it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. And yeah. so it's like, those are those decisions. It's like the tiny little mm-hmm. like decision that's like, is, is that wise to bring an eight week old tiger? cup into your apartment? (laughs) Probably not. Um, But you know what I'm saying? So anyway, all that to say, uh, you know, it's just so much harder to quantify. So like, how do we create systems of accountability around ourselves or Mm -hmm. others to prevent those big, massive moral cancel culture failures? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's a lot there. I know. (laughs) Um, You're welcome. I mean, one thing is one thing that comes to mind kind of looking at examples of the Bengal tiger and like what went wrong in some of these stories there is a strong you see with the like offending party that they demanded like secrecy like they didn't want anybody to know that they had brought home the baby tiger yeah right <laughs> and what's hard is that oftentimes like an elder board or a board of directors, you know, the kind of the official structure of accountability that's put in place in a lot of churches and ministries are overwhelmingly including people who kind of adore the person. hundred percent. Or 
who, so they either adore them. The person is their mentor. And so they're like, there's a power differential where they're afraid, like how, who am I to tell my mentor who's so gifted and so talented and so clearly called, like, who am I to kind of demand to know certain things about their private life? That's part of it. You know, sometimes in these situations, the, the central person's personality and persona is so big and overwhelming and charismatic that like people are afraid to go toe to toe with them mm-hmm. or that person's kind of mean. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to be shouted. You know, I don't want to be shouted at or kicked out of this group, or I don't want to lose my job. So there's again, the power. So uh, when I think about healthy leaders and healthy accountability leaders who want pushback, who recognize I don't have a bird's eye view on reality. I have blind spots just like everybody else. I have, you know, temptations. I need people who I want and welcome people who can and are free to give me the hard word, even though it it never feels good to get the hard word. Like it's not, you know, if you brought a baby tiger home that you think is really cute and your neighbor's like, I think that's a bad idea. And what were you thinking when you did this? Yes, This is irresponsible. This could hurt people. This is going to be like a building code violation. Um, (laughs) This is illegal at minimum. (laughs) Yes. Like, yeah, it's not going to feel good, but trusting that the hard word is given as a form of wisdom and as a way to prevent heartache and pain down the road. Mm -hmm. Like, so I, I, for my book, I interviewed a pastor here in New York named Rich Viotas. He's written a couple books on spiritual formation. And I just really appreciate his perspectives on this theme. And, you know, he is a pastor, he is accountable to other people. And he basically said, like, it's kind of like, tithing or like giving more than you think you could, like it should hurt a little, you know, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> it's not going to feel good, but like knowing and trusting that it, it is for your own ultimate good to welcome accountability. Right. Um, I also just think a willingness church leaders, but also people who do have large platforms online. Are you able to are you able and willing to step away from the spotlight for seasons? Yeah. You know, like, are you willing to say this isn't all about me, the church or the ministry or whatever will run without me. It's not all dependent on me. Or, you know, if I leave Instagram for three months, it's probably go- my, my, my followers are probably going to be okay. <laughs> right. But kind of intentionally stepping out of the spotlight or out of the place where where you're getting your ego needs met, sitting in stillness with God and kind of refocusing there, um, I think is, I mean, it's basically like extended Sabbath, yeah. but really that with the specific focus of stepping out of the spotlight so that you don't develop like a dependence on it for your own sense of worth and belovedness. Right. You know, and a lot of what I feel like I I hear you saying, it's just kind of this underlying thing that I, you know, so often we talk about, we need to hold other people accountable. Yes, we do. Absolutely. But also people need to be grownups and accept <laughs> responsibility and, mm-hmm. you know, admit when, hey, I screwed up and hey, mm-hmm. I made a mistake. And in a lot of ways, I have a lot of respect for people who can say Mm -hmm. and stand up and go, 
I absolutely, completely messed up and made Mm -hmm. some really terrible decisions. And I'm sorry. And I know Mm -hmm. that that doesn't fix it. But here is XYZ that I'm going to do to mm-hmm. make amends to, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully restore your faith in me. Like there's just there is a, uh, you know, I, I mean, I you know, what's the the phrase of like, the Christians are the only ones on the planet who uh, shoot their own wounded. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, we do. And sometimes and that's really terrible. But then also like, there's a an issue where I see so often, especially people who have some of these big moral failures or these big public, uh, you know, failings, whatever we want to call them, where there's a lack of like, honest, true repentance. Mm -hmm. And so there's like, you know, you always will hear the two sides of the Christian coin be like, forgive, give grace, forgive, give grace. And then it's like, but Mm -hmm. they didn't repent. So or they're just repeating Mm -hmm. the same behaviors over and over again. Right. I on one level, I have I have compassion for the public figure who has a moral failing or a scandal and then is trying to kind of reenter the spotlight. What is the we don't really have like a step by step. How do do this? Well, you know, completely. I will say, yes, there's a kind of there are two ends of the spectrum that are, I think, unhealthy, especially for Christian communities. There's the kind of cheap grace, which is like, oh, whatever, like God forgives us. all, And it's like, well, yes. But when if you have used your power to harm others, it's not just the forgiveness between me and God, which, of course, is secure. Mm -hmm. It's also making things right that have been broken, making repair. And I think as a public figure, being willing to say, this is what I am doing to do that as a form of accountability. Right. But then there there's the other end, which is like punitive, like we just want to see this person burn. Yeah, that is not healthy either. No. And I think with uh, that's kind of the reaction to the cheap grace. You know, it's like if you see someone being welcomed back to the spotlight with open arms without that person having done the work of restitution and making right what's been broken with other people, right? it's easy to go to the punitive. And I don't need to tell anybody listening that like social media can be extremely punitive. Oh, like, completely. <laughs> so I will say with anybody kind of returning to the spotlight maybe sit it out longer than you want to (laughs) (laughs) because what can so often happen is, you know, there's kind of this blanket apology or blanket forgiveness, like a PR, a PR statement that's released. That's like very clearly written by somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm just saying it's, we've seen it's a formula and it's usually in the notes app of their phone. And then they just screenshot their notes app every time. Why? Like, Come on, guys. They're like, okay, I, I did it. What more do you want? Here's, I'm my, back. here's my notes app apology. Do better. Yes, It feels so like PR-ish and calculated yeah. and like, you know, a personal branding thing. So I do think probably sit out longer than you want to. I know this is easier said than done. I think part of the problem that we've created with a lot of these like fallen leaders or figures who want to come back is we haven't helped them imagine a life of goodness and faithfulness outside of the spotlight. It's almost like, well, what else have they been prepared to do? 
And that's where I think the people who know them the closest and are like, are not on social media, but like who have deep relationship with them can say, what would be so bad about you doing an ordinary job (laughs) for the next three to five years and giving this the amount of time and space that it needs so that if, and when you reenter the spotlight, you're doing it from a place of health and wholeness and having repaired what's been broken rather than, well, I don't know what else to do. So I'm coming back. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And it does. I think it speaks again to just an overarching thing that we've talked about. And just this idea of deep relationships with real people and, Mm -hmm. um, allowing, ourselves to be in a place of vulnerability with people and not social media. And I'm not saying that being vulnerable on social media is a bad thing to an extent. I mean, I certainly have shared incredibly vulnerable things on social media. My book is going to be incredibly vulnerable in a lot of areas, but there's also pieces that I'm not going to write about and I'm not going to share Mm -hmm. about and only those closest to Mm -hmm. me. And that's not that I'm like, I want to hide that, but those are, it's just the world doesn't need to know everything. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, and I, I realize maybe I'm going on a tangent, but I just, I think it's just so important to have and focus on real just deep relationships with people in community. And, you know, more often than not, it, it, you know, I, I believe that that should take place within, you know, the community of a, of a, of a thriving, you know, humble church. I mean, for mm-hmm. a lot of us and, mm-hmm. um, you know, going back to what you were talking about, Eugene is just, you know, focusing in on his people in his place. And that's been a, such a gift for me and my family this year, as we, we planted a church, uh, with our community and, Mm. you know, it was unexpected for a lot of reasons that it's another story for another day of, of (laughs) we kind of found ourselves planting a church, even though that was not something we ever set out to do. And at the time I was kind of asking God, like, why, why, why we were comfortable. We were happy in our church community and everything was great. Mm. And then God was like, that's cute. <laughs> and so, but now on the other side or, or in the kind of even in the messy middle of it, I've seen already the fruit of what intimate community with your people that you live near and you do life with mm-hmm. and not to like use a Christianese phrase, but like mm-hmm. really like, you know, Friday nights around the campfire where your kids are going crazy, but you know, the, the grownups are sitting and, and talking about really hard things and celebrating mm-hmm. wins and things like that. And like, these are the people that I want to be 95 and sitting in the front row of church heckling our pastor, you know, like I, I want to be like <laughs> the curmudgeon in the front. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to actually be a curmudgeon when I'm 95. <laughs> but, you know, I, I want to be able to look back and say, man, it was really awesome to live and know these people for the last 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. whatever that mm-hmm. looks like. Um, and that they, they know me and love me and mm-hmm. we need leaders to be doing that. Mm-hmm. And oh, man, yeah, there's a lot. I think, yeah, I think what you're describing is like something called friendship. Yeah. Is that crazy? <laughs> Which on one hand, it's like, yes, of course, everybody needs friends, but I mean, real friendship, like real. A friend, the kind of friendships that last if not a lifetime decades yeah. and being 
embedded in community where you're kind of committed to each other for the long haul and you can celebrate and lament and mourn and it's all shared. Right. And these people are not impressed by me. That's not why they're friends with me. Yeah. And they, and they love me more deeply and more fully than anybody could possibly, especially the people who are impressed by me. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so that's something that I, I was interviewing a author named Andy Crouch for the final section of my book. And I asked him like, okay, if you could kind of name the the solution, quote unquote, to the celebrity problem, he's like friendship. Mm. And that just really stuck with me. And then made me think like, do I have those kinds of friendships, you know, and am I cultivating those kinds of friendships and what kind of time and energy am I investing in those friendships and in that community compared with the amount of time that I'm scrolling the internet and getting fired up? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's hard. I mean, I, and I think it's harder the older you get, right? Like if I can get to age 65 and have like three really close friends, like a ride or die situation, I will feel so incredibly grateful, Yeah, you know? So, but I do think, I do think that's what it takes, um, being deeply embedded, deeply known, deeply loved. That is what we're made for. And that is what keeps us grounded in yes. true knowledge of ourselves and each other and who God made us to be. Yeah. And this kind of reminds me and, and goes back to, there was, you know, where we'd kind of put in the, a pin in the the whole platform discussion, um, like building the actual platform. But um, just to your point with, uh, with friendship, I remember, um, so uh, our, one of our mutual friends, uh, Sharon Hottie Miller, Sharon and I have, t- have talked a lot about this. And mm-hmm. um, one of the gifts that we've talked about just in, in our friendship is that we, we do different things, but we also do similar things. So like we understand each other. There's a, uh, mm-hmm. an understanding there in our friendship, but also we have enough of a separation in that, you know, mm-hmm. that we can kind of look almost on a, um, like on a, uh, on an out as an outsider and say like, speak into something without having that kind of personal connection to it. I don't even know if I'm articulating that correctly, but Mm -hmm. last fall, um, like she, she asked me, she said, Hey, would you ever consider like traveling with me when Mm. I speak? And I said, yeah, of course. And she's like, I mean, one, you'd be more fun to like go places with rather than traveling (laughs) alone. Um, But she said one of the things that she just tries to to do is to not travel alone when she's traveling to conferences to speak or, you know, wherever possible. She tries to, Hmm. you know, bring, you know, one of her kids with her or Ike with her, her husband. And she was like, but I just feel like you'd be really fun. And so I I was like, yeah, sure. So I traveled with her to Quincy, Illinois, where dreams come true. And (laughs) we were at this. They're like, so where's our first trip? Yeah. She's like, well, that's the bad news. Yeah. It's Quincy, Illinois. Quincy, Illinois. Quincy, Illinois. You're like, what's in Quincy, Illinois? Not much. Um, yeah. But the people there were phenomenal. So if anybody yes. listening is like, wait a second, <laughs> I live in Quincy. Your church was awesome. We had a great time. Yes. But it was really interesting because she was speaking. It was a two-day women's conference and she was the only speaker. She spoke three times. Oh, wow. Which is a lot. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I just kind of, I just travel with her and just had fun. And I mean, I didn't have to do anything other than hang out with her and we got Mexican food and, you know, and I got to listen to her speak and participate in the conference and stuff. But I remember at one point 
the senior pastor of this church was a big multi-site church in and around uh, uh, Missouri um, and uh, Illinois. I think they even have a campus in Iowa. So it's kind of all in that area. And Mm -hmm. the wife of the head pastor was at the church and or at the conference and she was sitting right behind me and she said she she stopped like in one of the breaks and she said, I just wanted to thank you so much for being here. And I just mm-hmm. remember saying, um, you're welcome. I mean, like I didn't, I haven't done anything. Like I'm not speaking. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing anything. And she goes, no, I just, I think it is really amazing to see you know, Sharon's friend with her helping to hold her accountable while she's here. And I had Mm. never thought of it in that way. And Sharon and I had certainly had those conversations, but it wasn't anything that was ever really explicitly discussed. But it was just, it was really an encouragement to me of just this pastor's wife being like, thank you so much for being here and like recognizing the importance Mm. of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And she goes, and I just, she was like, I just am praying over your friendship with Sharon. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, that's the, like the sweetest thing. Like, thank you. But it, you know, when, and so Sharon and I talked a lot about that um, on our drive from Quincy, Illinois to uh, the St. Louis airport. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) you know, and and just that, 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 that. the idea of that and like, what does that mm-hmm. look like practically and, and, and holding each other accountable. And, you know, we, we went off on, of course, other tangents, but all that to say is then that leads me back to, um, and before uh, we're like, before I get to the get to know you ride, I do want to touch back on that and kind of land this plane. Um, as we, we talk again about this, this idea of platform and how, mm-hmm. you know, I think we, we started off talking about, you know, the, the, just the, ugh, okay, we write a book or you do this thing and you have to have this platform, but then the middle part where it's like, okay, here's the, the dangers of persona and, and power and mm-hmm. decision-making, mm-hmm. but then also what do we do with that? And, you know, if you're an author, if you're a speaker, if you're doing something that you really feel called to do, and it's this gift that God has given you and you're wanting to steward it well, how do you find, and yes, it, you know, I think it does go back to, to friendship, but in the process, mm. how do you steward that platform well? How do you steward the 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 growth of it well? you know, where you have in mind, like, I I would like to sell books, (laughs) like I would like Mm -hmm. to book speaking Mm -hmm. gigs, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. How do you balance all that? Mm -hmm. The first thing that comes to mind, going back to the sense of being called or feel, I should say, the sense of feeling called, right, (laughs) is to ask other people if they perceive that for you. Yeah. (laughs) Going back to the accountability thing. Um, I know this is, it's easy for me to say because my vocational path has led me so clearly in the path of writing and publishing. Right. Um, but I worry sometimes that our models of Christian faithfulness and calling, we kind of look at what other people are doing and we think like, Oh, I, I, I think I could be like them. <laughs> right. And just just kind of stepping back and asking why do why do I want to build a platform? Right. What is again coming back to the image of getting up on a platform to deliver a message? Well, what's the message that I want to deliver, need to deliver, do I need to deliver it? Does it re- is it really does it land on me to do this? Like is um, it self-serving or is it actually serving others? 
Right. Getting back to the questions of motive and trying to really be honest with yourself. What is, what am I hoping to do? I know what it's like to get overly focused on the financial side of things, maybe in part because I'm a single woman. I provide for myself. I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be fair, fairly compensated for the work that you do. Writing and speaking our work, everybody should be compensated fairly. But I've had to consciously not compare, <laughs> not looking at other people's numbers or where they're getting to speak or the kind of book deals that they're getting, accepting. I am not them. I am not called to be like them. I can't be... Sharon Hottie Miller. I'm just saying her because we yeah. were just talking about her. Yeah. <laughs> like we are different people. We're called to do different things in the world. Can I accept? And again, I'm just speaking for myself. Can I accept that maybe God doesn't want me to have a huge platform? Or maybe he, maybe God wants me to speak to a totally different segment of the church or right. maybe the platform. I was just speaking with another editor at Baker Publishing Group. We were talking about an author who has done like very well and her books have sold very well. And she was commenting, this author started writing like 35 years ago. All of the growth in her platform has been totally organic. It wasn't like, I'm going to use the algorithm to try to, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to create all these reels and viral videos to try to like get more followers. It's been this steady, consistent, faithful growth that is now kind of being rewarded. So also thinking about kind of the slow and steady rather mm -hmm. than the quick and instantaneous. And again, just coming back to ultimate questions of faithfulness. And honestly, I, you know, we might think like, oh, well, God rewards people with large platforms. Yeah. <laughs> and I just want to put to lie that notion that 100% big means blessing. Right. And in fact, for a lot of people, I would not wish a big following or platform on them. Yeah. I don't even know that I I should have. I don't even know that I should have the platform that I have because it is an extra. It could so often for so many people be this extra burden of temptation. Right. Where your motives can get really easily murky, where you start saying and doing things because that's what people want to hear <laughs> rather than because that's what God wants you to say. So I wonder if even wanting the big platform is a sign that you're not ready for it. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe the best, healthiest way to get it is when you're not looking for it. Could not agree more. Um, man, I, oh man, here we go. Caitlin, see, I'm, <laughs> I gotta just talk to you for like another three or four hours. You're just, uh, just a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and this topic in particular, I just feel like has really been so timely. And it's just really interesting how, you know, earlier in the summer, I've, you know, I had conversations that were just really uh, touching very similarly on this, but it, even in a different way, if that makes sense. And um, mm -hmm. so I just think that this is you know, you're on a cultural pulse point right now. Um, and so your book is is so timely. And so uh, my encouragement to everyone right now is to just go and buy the book right now. Just just go ahead and you can like pause <laughs> it and you can like go to, you know, your indie bookstore or wherever you get your books and uh, get celebrities for Jesus, how personas, platforms and profits are hurting the church. And Caitlin, thank you for your faithfulness. 
in uh, stewarding your gifts and your platform well um, in writing this book. Is there anything before we get to the get to know you round? Is there anything else, you know, like any words of wisdom that you want to leave the people with? <laughs> no, I think I'm done with the words of wisdom. I like we it. We can get to the fun part. Now. All right, let's get to the fun part now. Okay, Caitlin. <laughs> Um, all right. So question number one, uh, of all of your pet peeves, if you have any pet peeves, which one is the weirdest pet peeve? I don't know that this is super weird because Sharon and I have talked about this. So I know that at least one other person out there shares this, this annoyance. Okay. When you're at the airport, they have the walking, the, what are they called? Yes. Yes. Sharon and I talked about this the last time we were traveling together. The walking, they have the mo- you know, the like fast forward moving walkway, the moving that walkway. What they're called. Why do people why, stand? Why would one get on a moving walkway and then stand in the middle? It doesn't make any sense. Drives me crazy. So Sharon and I traveled to Houston together in um, back in June, early June. And we were, this exact scenario happened and Sharon and I are looking at each other. We're like raging inside because there's these two people. They're just, it was a very long moving walkway. We were in the Houston (laughs) airport. We were, we had all this time to kill and we were trying to get to like one of the lounges that was Mm -hmm. like really far away. And there was this really long moving walkway. And this couple (laughs) is just standing in the middle right in front of us and Sharon and I like, oh my gosh. And I was like, just, just say something, say something to him. And she was like, yeah. no, I can't. And I was like, I will. <laughs> like, I, like, I am with you. I, I usually I'll be like, excuse me, excuse me. Because all they need to do is just step to the side, to the side. They can, they can stand, they can keep standing. They can keep having a leisurely conversation <laughs> at a leisurely pace. They just need to stand to the side so that other people who are using the moving walkway for its intended purpose can continue on their journey. Yes. I just, (laughs) and the other thing too, is like, if you are standing on the moving walkway, you are actually moving slower than if you were just walking, not on the moving walkway. So like, I don't understand. Okay. Anyway, if you are a person right now who was listening to this and you stand in the middle of moving walkways, I need you to send me an email. Hello at stillbeingmolly.com. And I need you to tell me why. Why? Yes. Why? I just need to know why. That's all. Okay. Anyway, we are, we, you are not alone and it's not weird and I love it. Okay. Um, what is something that I would never guess about you? (laughs) Um, hmm. Would you have naturally guessed that I like karaoke? I would not, but I now really love that. And do you, what is your go-to karaoke song? I think you mean songs. Okay. All right. (laughs) Hit me, Um, Caitlin. (laughs) So I find that, let's see, this is such a like big move, but people respond to, actually, I'm going to pull up the list on my phone. Oh, you have a go-to karaoke list on your phone? Yeah, because when you're when you're at karaoke and you're like looking through the big book, like I, why can't I think? of what I, you know, the song that I heard in the ra- on the radio, I'm like, this would make a great karaoke song. Yeah. Um, Don't Stop Believing by Journey is of my crowd favorite. Uh, Bonnie Raitt. Mm. I do a pretty good share impression. Oh. The Killers can be a crowd favorite. You really have to read the room. Yeah. <laughs> um, But I, and I have not actually been for a couple of years because the places here have been shut down, but I do, I do love to sing karaoke. 
I love it. I'm a big fan. Can I t- tell you what my go-to karaoke song is? Yes. I- um, it's Killing Me Softly by Lauren Hill, the Fuji's virgin. Oh. And the most memorable uh, version that I ever uh, performed was, okay, and... <laughs> It was back in 2007. It was the summer of 2007. It was right after I graduated college. And I was actually in New York. um, And I was there for the whole summer because I was taking comedy classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Oh, yeah. You like totally buried the lead. I know. Cool. (laughs) I know. Yeah. So it's it's like my it's this whole other life where I did improv and sketch comedy for many, 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 many years. And uh, on one of my particular trips uh, up to New York, and I was staying, like I said, I stayed the whole summer, I was taking these classes. And um, some of the people from my class uh, was one of the guys was like, we're going to go to this bar for karaoke night. So it's a bar called Sweet, S-U-I-T-E. And it's on the upper east side of Manhattan, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is a drag bar and (laughs) uh, was not aware of that at the time. So I show up to this this karaoke night at this drag bar and uh, I get up and I sing Killing Me Softly by Lauren Hill. And when you talk about knowing your audience, uh, <laughs> 125 uh, drag queens uh, were a big fan of my rendition. That's amazing. I'm just going to say, if you ever need an e- ego bo- boost, forget Instagram. Yeah, Go on up to Sweet on the Upper East <laughs> Side of Manhattan and sing Killing Me Softly and you will feel like a rock star. So anyway, that's my... <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> it, was, it was really fun. Anyway... That's- that's like the best that's the best thing that could happen at karaoke is when you like kill it just kill it you're like i'm gonna ride this ego boost for years yeah it would definitely like i think it like if you have a like a meter like an internal meter of like your you know your ego being filled (laughs) like it just it it overflowed and it's just Mm -hmm. carried me for the last i don't know whatever it was 17 years years. 15 years i don't know math is hard um okay in any event okay uh two more questions um the last, second to last question is, what is a dream that you have yet to achieve? I, <laughs> oh boy. I mean, I think it'd be really cool to work as an editor at the New York Times. Mm. Now that when I say dream, that's like an impossible, you know, who knows how likely that is. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm an Enneagram three with a four wing. So I like it a challenge. I like to feel like I'm moving up a ladder mm-hmm. that would be like very high up the ladder, but, um, yeah, something in like religion journalism for like a major newspaper would be a dream. That's awesome. And I think you would be fantastic at it. Okay. And then my last question, uh, is the question I ask all my guests and that is Caitlin, what does it mean to you personally to run a business with purpose? So I'm thinking about book publishing. I don't run <laughs> Baker publishing group, but I play a big part yeah. in our work. And I really admire how Baker in general kind of marries a sense of serving the body of Christ with good books and running a sustainable business. And that those two things can coexist and that making wise financial decisions or business decisions actually allows you to reach more people with right. important messages. So I think sometimes there can be a false dichotomy in publishing where it's like you're only, you're either only driven by mission or you're only driven by profit. And I, I feel like Baker Publishing Group 
and in the work that I get to do, even looking at proposals, like, yes, of course, looking at questions of, do we think we can sell this book? (laughs) Could we even make a profit from this book? But also what's the core message? Is this on mission for us? Do we think this will serve a lot of people? And when those two things can be true, that we can sell a book and it's an important message, that's when I feel like I've had a really good work day. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Caitlin, this has been as much of a pleasure as I knew it would be. Thank you for being here. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. I love Caitlin so much. Man, she is just such a powerhouse and somebody who I really just kind of want to be friends with. Uh, I knew that you would love this conversation. So if you did and if you learned something, please let us know on social media. You can tag me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast wherever you are on socials. You can find Caitlin. She's at Caitlin Beatty. That's B-E-A-T-Y. And tag us. Let us know what you loved about this episode. Be sure to tune in next week where my guest is Selena Ho and she is the founder of Recloseted. And they are a entire incredible company that is working with startups in the sustainable and ethical fashion world. You're going to love my chat with Selena. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and click that subscribe or follow button to help make sure you never miss a new episode of the show. And if you would take a moment, would you leave a review? Leaving a review helps me to know what you're liking and how this show is personally impacting you. Thank you so much for the team at Third Wheel Media for producing this show. As always, go do something good with purpose on purpose.